This is the Illuminate Collective podcast brought to you by AAB Consulting and I'm your host Shan Parker. Today's guest Don Smith is not only an applied innovation consultant and inventor but also the driving force behind 100 Flowers, a consultancy revolutionising how organisations harness invention and innovation. Don's mission? To transform these businesses into disruptors rather than the disrupted. In today's conversation, we chat about Don's bookmark moment. He shares his first work placement experience, which, against all odds and with a little help from his resourceful Geordie mother, turned into a defining chapter in his life. We'll also explore the audacious pitch that won the Iron Brew MD over and explore the invaluable lesson Don has gathered throughout his illustrious career in creativity. This episode isn't just a marketing masterclass, it's interspersed with philosophical gems and life insight. For someone who claims not to be driven by money, Don's journey is a vivid illustration of his extraordinary dedication and hard work. So let's dive in and uncover the secrets behind his remarkable success. Don. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. I feel like we've been here for about 10 minutes and we've already chatted about so many good things. What's left? <laughs> Maybe we should have been recording before we started. Um, but we want to dive right in. There's so much we can talk about, but we want to just start with what we're calling our bookmark. moment. So a time in your life where you had choices and you could have done a few different things. Whatever you chose to do led you to where you are now. Um, what's springing to mind? What is Dawn's bookmark moment? Well, there's probably about four, I would say, in my life throughout those key killer moments that you go, what were the the, the sliding doors moments that the, the, the led you on pathways? The first would would be when I was very young, growing up in, in a city, Newcastle, um, in the days before the internet media, you didn't really have a sense of what your options were in the big wide world. And I didn't know what I was going to, I was very poor academically, wasn't really... Um, destined for greatness in any particular area. And when I was about 15, we had to do work experience at school. And I quite liked design. We had a, a design technology course and I got sent to a nightclub in Newcastle as a design work experience. And I had to press the button on the photocopier to print the flyers for the nightclub. And my mother being her tough Northern self marched me back up to the school uh, and demanded to speak to somebody because this wasn't good enough, this wasn't design. And the lady who worked on reception at the school, um, her husband worked in a very small ad agency in Newcastle. And so she pulled a few strings and got me a, a work experience in for two weeks in a, an ad agency. Very small, more retail ad agency. But I got sat in the studio um, and I got put with this fantastic man called Eric Hall, who was the, uh, he, he sort of ran the studio and he was a typesetter designer and he took me under his wing for two weeks and basically gave me the the experience that I didn't have at school, which was here's a problem to solve that we've been given a brief by one of our clients. And there is no definitive set way to answer this. You have to creatively come up with a solution to that and articulate that solution in, a, in an advert. And I was so there's no formula, there's no equation. There's, I can just come up with something from my own mind and suddenly I realized this is what I do. I like that freedom of thought. Uh, and I spent two weeks there and Eric helped me. And at the end of the two weeks, I was so enamored by the, the work, I asked if I could come back through summer. And I did six weeks, I think, in summer, just unpaid, sitting with them, exploring what I could do, playing with 
um, all of the old literacy type to, to learn about design. And I was hooked. And they explained to me that if I wanted a career in advertising, I'd need to go to college. And and so I learned what I, the pathway ahead was shown to me. Study design, study advertising, get a portfolio, move into, um, take it around the ad agencies, try and get a job in a creative department. So that that inspiration, that motivation, if I hadn't had that, I may, be, may have been working in a nightclub as a photocopying so expert. So if your, if your old mum hadn't of My old mom in and, and made a decision for you. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you don't make your own decisions in life. That's right, um, isn't it? Sometimes you have to accept that there is a little bit of serendipity happens, a little bit of luck, the right place at the right time, people supporting you. You don't often until later in life realise how important those influences were. Um, I think my mum, my dad, but people like Eric, people who act as mentors. There's a very interesting thing that I am, I'm a big fan of mythology and the the the, the mythologist um, um, Joseph Campbell, he talks about this this idea of um, the second father in your life, and and it's it's more about it's not just the second father. It's not just the second father can be second mother. It's 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 about your parents bring you up to a point where they teach you to become an adult, but you can't then use them as a reference point for what you're going to become. You have to become something unique to yourself, and at that point you need a figure, an adult figure, to come into your life who can represent what you could be other than what you're predisposed to be from a sort of genetic and, and parental perspective. And you see that person, you go, ah, that gives me a blueprint for something I like and I feel comfortable being. And it's sort of the mentor. And in mythology, it's the Obi-Wan type character, the Gandalf type character. Um, and they they often, you meet that person at a certain point in time. It's not, it can be a teacher, it can be anyone, but they help you understand what the potential pathway that is the optimal pathway for you is. It's interesting how when you ask people, did they have that person in life? Did they meet that person? A lot of people say, ah, it's, that was the, the trigger. And maybe at the time they weren't aware that that was the person. It's almost like looking back, you mm -hmm. know, retrospectively, they probably thought, oh, actually, and now that you've just say, said this, there's a couple of people that have kind of gone through my yeah. head and I'm thinking, maybe without them, I wouldn't be sitting right here just now, yeah. you know? And, you, and um, as Steve Jobs always said, you can only join the dots backwards. I love that. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Um, do you think, so for anyone that's listening and that's, you know, in the position where they want to find a mentor, they want to find somebody who they can look up to, somebody can come into our lives kind of as and when and, you know, hope for the best, but how do we go out and find them? If we want to find somebody, any sort of tips around, you know, finding your own mentor? I was very lucky that that I, I kind of understood the area that I felt comfortable with so design. I, I didn't really know what design was, but there was an element of creativity. A lot of people don't really have that sense. So I think it's about exploring. It's about being really open to new experiences. And I think as a as a teenager, see, school tells you about subjects. It doesn't tell you about careers as such and it's not even about careers it's about exploring who you are at your core and what kind of pathway in life is right for you so my my view of that for young people is don't make assumptions that you're going to do one thing try many different things as many as you can and be willing to pivot when you find that thing because that's the that's the other thing it's the we end up on courses that are not right for us um 
And so many people go through university, they do one or two years and then they go, I don't really like this, but I have to finish it. Yeah. So you do the other two years and then you graduate and you have to make the most of it. And it's the sunk cost fallacy that it's throwing good money after bad or a good time after, after bad. Um, if it really doesn't feel right, you have to trust your instincts in life. Mm. and Be willing to adapt. And it's okay to quit if something's not working out. It, it it's is. Okay to quit. But you have to identify, you have, have to really interrogate your feelings and your reasons. Mm. Um, if, it, if your head is telling you, this is hard, this is difficult, I'm, I'm, I'm not academically perhaps capable of, 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 of doing well here, but you might actually love the subject, then that's, that's sort of, it's about, you know, don't miss, quit, not through laziness, but through, you know, your heart telling you this is wrong. Interesting. So the early days, we know you're at school, mm -hmm. we know that you've ended up deciding that you want to go mm -hmm. in this creative pathway. What was the first real step into that? After the, what we're calling, I suppose, a placement time yep. when you were at school, yep. what happened after that? Well, so I came back to school with a renewed passion for my future. And I realized that I needed to get onto a graphic design course first because advertising courses were all higher courses. So I needed to do two years of graphic design and then two years of advertising. And luckily in Newcastle, they had one of the best courses in advertising in the UK. So my job was to get onto the design course. So I had to pass my exams and I was doing very bad academically. But interestingly, when you're motivated, you go, right, I need to do this. I will do this. And I, and I suddenly raised my game, worked harder, got the qualifications, got on the design course, did the two years there, got on the advertising course, did the two years there, put a portfolio of work together, mm -hmm. went to London expecting to be received with great uh, applause only to find that it was the height of the recession in the early 90s and I was walking into agencies with my portfolio um, whilst legendary creative directors were walking out with boxes of their their stuff oh, because no. there was huge redundancies. So it was a very tough time. I spent a year and a half in London on the breadline really because we were, uh, me and my, my creative part of the time, um, we were um, unemployed, trying to get work. And then we sent our work up to Edinburgh to one of the creative directors who used to come and lecture at Newcastle College. And he really liked it. And he sent us two train tickets to come up to Edinburgh and do two weeks of work experience. Um, and we thought, this is an opportunity we can't let down. So we, we went to Edinburgh, slept on floors of friends' floors, went in at 7 a.m., worked till midnight. There was no way we weren't going to impress them. And again, it's that, it's that if you really are passionate about something, you know it inside you that you want it and you don't give up. Um, and he was, he was very pleased with us. And he said, look, I, I don't have jobs right now, but, but we've got a six month, um, plan of new business. And if it all goes very well, I should be in a position to hire. And if you guys are around, I, I'd really like to hire you. So we had a decision to make and we thought all in, we quit our flat in London. We moved to Edinburgh and we got a flat. We, we went in and worked on work experience for for six months for free just because we desperately wanted it and it worked out and I got a job. And then at that point, I was very lucky. I've had a lot of luck, a lot of serendipity in my life and I don't, I don't discount the value of that, but I also think you make your own luck with the effort you put in. Um, the hard work tends to, pay, tends to pay off and the harder you work and the more you explore your options, 
the more chance there is of those serendipitous moments happening for you. So as the new team, we got to work on Iron Brew when Iron Brew moved from London to back to Scotland as an account. Um, and that's its own little legendary story, but it was a, a, a real catapult in my career. Within the first couple of years of, of working, I worked on Iron Brew, radically changed that campaign, and we won awards left, right, and center. Just talk us through that. Like is, That's huge. You know, the first big thing you work on yeah. is something that's a household name to us lot these yeah. days. And if I'm honest, I didn't, I never knew it was out of Scotland. I thought it was always within yeah. Scotland. So the fact that it came back and you guys were the first on it. Well, you're cool. probably too young to remember the <laughs> Made in Scotland from Gerda's campaign. E yes. Yeah. So um, it was a very famous campaign itself, but what it did was it, it was, Iron Brew advertising was a pastiche of Coke advertising. It was sort of like, Coke ads, but with a, a Scottish twist. Mm. And it was funny, but it didn't really sell the product. And it certainly it certainly wasn't a youth brand. So what we did is we, again, I was only 21, 22, and my partner was 23, 24. And we were, we were you know, in, a, in amongst the, it was that Britpop time, youth culture was really emerging. And we were coming out of the 80s into the 90s, a bit more challenging culture. Um, so we put this, um, we were asked to pitch for Iron Brew and we put this pitch together and the basis of the strategy we wrote wasn't really about the work. It was about the strategy. The strategy concept was disposable culture requires disposable advertising. And so we were living in a, in a more of a throwaway, um, new media culture. So we decided rather than making an advert, going to make 30 or 40 adverts and we we're going to pepper them everywhere. They were going to be quick, fast, down and dirty, low production values, very youth culture. And to present that to the client, it was, it was always going to be a challenge. So the client was a, a great guy called Nigel Dugdale, the Iron Brew marketing director. And he came in and we pitched to him and Nigel was at the time, late thirties, um, had about four kids married he was very, he had, he had a caravan. He would go on caravan holidays. He was very much, you know, white socks and sandals. Lovely guy though. <laughs> Not youth culture guy. Yes, the complete so, opposite. <laughs> so to present to him, to try and convince him of the, the radical advertising we were, we were doing, we went into the pitch and we took a ghetto blaster and a, and a CD. And we didn't really say anything. We put the, the ghetto blaster in front of him, we put the CD in and we played it. And it was the Beastie Boys sabotage. Turned the volume up to 10 and pressed the button. <laughs> and Nigel sat there like face like fizz, absolutely raging. And and you could tell he was looking at the 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 MD, like giving them evils, you know, well, this is you're in you're in trouble now. Yep. Finished, turned it off, and we said, Did you like that? And he went, No, I didn't like that at all. And we said, Well, that's the number one song on the charts at the minute. It's being sold by the millions to your consumer audience and the reason you don't like that is the same reason you're going to hate the scripts we're about to present to you and he went Attack I see your point smart and he was smart enough and intelligent enough to go I get it this is not about me this is about doing what's right for our audience and marketing to them um so that was a that gets you know that's the the legendary story of the iron brew <laughs> advertising pitch but again he bought it, we made the work, it did very well. It increased sales of Iron Brew by 10% in London, right. which had never happened in the history of Iron Brew. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, it proved that it wasn't really about the product, but more about the attitude and the brand and the marketing you do. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then that was that was great. And the rest of my advertising career blossomed as a result of that. Just mm -hmm. you know, early success is a, a great um, a great way to accelerate a career. And something in there about taking a risk, and you know, whoever the audience is that you're pitching to, yeah. they're then pitching to a totally different audience. Mm -hmm. So get in the minds of who you're trying to sell to, as opposed to the person in front of you at the table. Yeah, um, it's all about so the psychology. Yeah. It's all about human psycholo psychology. What what motivates people? Um, what are their what are their core passions and and reasons to exist? And how do you tap into that? There's an interesting. Uh, very, very interested these days about there's more and more in those days we didn't have mm. many psychology models to work with to kind of really understand how to interrogate the audience but these days you have things like jobs theory from harvard university which obviously looks at the functional emotional and social aspects of the the need of the core user and then i also love the the bmat formula from um B.J. Fogg at Stanford, which is behavior is equal to motivation, ability, and trigger. And you can use that to, you can use that in, in, in marketing. If you want to change someone's behavior, understand their motivation, um, ensure they have the ability to act on that motivation, and then you put what he calls hot triggers in front of them. So these are moments when, when you're in the right time at the right moment where your, your motivation's at its highest, and you need to have that ability placed in front of you. This is why this is why people buy more from social media, certain time and place that you go. That's the thing I want, and I want it now. So Iron Brew kicked off a colourful career, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Um, <laughs> maybe gloss over that yeah. if you're if you're looking at the sort of 10, 15 year period after Iron Brew. What did that look like? What sort of levels did you work your way up to? What was that period of life like for you? So. It was good. It was good, and it was diverse. And I, I absolutely, I absolutely loved my experience in the advertising world. It was, I got to work on so many sectors, so many brands, so many products, and it was never boring. It was actually really exciting and really, really interesting. I got to work with fantastic people, but I think what it taught me towards the end of that career was, it's a. How do, I, how do I describe it best? You productize creativity. And as somebody who is creative, my life was spent solving problems for other people and ensuring that the problems I solved gave great value to them and their businesses. I think that's what agencies do. It's what consulting companies do as well. Um, quite often we sell, we sell a day's work and if it's the right day and the right work, that can catapult a business and be worth millions and millions. It's not really about time. It's about those moments and those ideas. And I think that it, something in me started to realize that um, I was sort of held back in a, in a certain respect because I was taking big risks mentally with my own thinking on behalf of clients, but I wasn't really taking risks from a business perspective for myself. And, and I watched the world emerge in this entrepreneurial economy and everyone can start their own business and everyone can, you know, be the, the next big thing. And I always felt that I'm a problem solver, but nobody, the, the other thing that frustrated me was as a creative, you get put in a box and you get told you're, you're creative, you're creative, your mind's amazing, you're wonderful. You get all the plaudits and all the, all the praise, um, but nobody ever teaches you how the business works. 
how the wider world operates. And so you're, you end up kind of stuck as a creative person. You're great with the creative stuff, but what is a business? How do we make money? How does it operate? What is the functional wraparound of all that? I didn't know that. And as I started getting more and more senior and more exposed to that, I think part of me thought, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. Um, it's made to seem complicated. There's a great Nietzsche quote about about sort of um, complexity and about people and the way people will will present complexity. And he says, they muddy the water to make it look deep. So you think about the legal world, the accountancy world, all professions, the medical world. Um, and don't get me wrong, it is very complex and complicated, but it's not beyond you to understand it. And relatively quickly, I always think you can get to understand about 80% of the way any any structure operates. Last 20% of deep dive complex stuff, but you can understand these things. And if you understand them, you can connect things together and you can be relatively proficient quickly. So that was probably the second big thing in, in my life that the agency I worked for, I'd moved into digital by this point, but it's still agency land. And, and um, the agency that I worked for realized um, the guys who owned it sold it to a bigger company. And I was very lucky that I made a a small amount of money about that, enough to really say I could probably support myself for six months to a year. Nice. And it was the only time in my life I had that financial freedom. And I thought, I have to do this now. And I'd been working on a few ideas of my own inventions. Um, and I decided that this was the time to take the leap, the leap to start my own invention business and put something in, in the world that would, my own idea that would develop for myself. And also to consult independently so that I wasn't attached to an agency having to do what the, the company wanted and I could freely move and work with good people. So consulting to pay the bills mm -hmm. and developing a business or multiple businesses with a view that at some point in time, all the bills are paid and I have that financial freedom to be creative in whatever way I wanted. Mm -hmm. So that happened about eight years ago. Okay. And again, it was one of those change, those pivotal change moments in life. Um, and... And yeah, so that was the that was the the second big one. That's really. a huge decision, though, going from being an employee to I'm going to say an employer, but you're mm -hmm. you're you and you're on your own. And you're well, I do have so I do have a, I have a business partner Lisa who works with okay. me, okay. and we although we don't have employees, we directly employ um, probably three or four other people, and we also have companies working for us with the employees of the company. Mm -hmm. So um, we have contributed in that respect, but. I, that's so different though right Jan, nobody grows up in life wanting to be a man manager I know that's the truth that I've, I know, I've learned I know. so <laughs> I've sort of avoided that and I also think building building strong networks is 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 the right way so yeah so interesting um going from that being part of the larger group mm -hmm. to kind of doing your own thing with a few sort of outposts what was that like at the time that's obviously a huge risk you know you obviously had a little bit of financial backing yeah. so you thought right I'm comfortable I'm safe for a certain yeah. period of time within that certain period of time did you get near the end and think oh was there any moments of oh god Terrifying. is this going to work out absolutely you know? yeah. yeah I had moments where <laughs> the money the money sort of is slowly going down you think I need to make get more work soon got more work soon got more I really need to get more work I really need to get more work and so the pressure to hustle and get out there and talk to people my old boss um, from my advertising days, wonderful man called Ian McAteer. He sat me down before I started my own consulting. And he said, here's what's going to happen. 
you're you, you know you're great at what you do, you know you're capable, you know you can kind of make a huge difference to people's businesses, you know you should be in high demand, you're going to put it out there, you're going to say, hey, I'm free, I'm here. No one's going to give a shit. Wow. That was his advice. Yep. He said, and and you're going to suddenly realize that no one gives a shit, mm-hmm. and then you're going to get over that and realize that you have to go out and chase and hustle, and it's that nobody's going to walk through your door and say, oh, thank God, you're there, we needed you got to go bang on the door you've got to tell them what you're doing you've got to kind of ask for the meetings you've got to network and hustle um and it's the it's one of the great truths that whenever I, I i sort of mentor people starting business now as you all know we've done it through um aab but i always say any business there's only two things you have to, you do with a business you make a product or service and you sell it the two halves and everybody wants to focus on the building, the lovely product and the wonderful business and the, the thing that you're good at and you've developed a career and a reputation for. Nobody wants to get out and hustle. And that's the killer piece because if you don't, the business will fail. So the duality of that is important. And I hear the excuse all the time, I'm, I'm not that person, I'm not a salesperson, I, I'm not comfortable with that. Make yourself comfortable, get comfortable because you only get comfortable by at first being uncomfortable and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Once you get into that, you learn about it, you become more comfortable and you become more competent. So it's uh, that's been a huge learning curve. I was very lucky that I came from a world where um, I had to pitch a lot. I always think my advertising career, my sort of entrepreneurial career is me doing what I do. My advertising career was, I always go back, it was like the Karate Kid film. Um, it was me practicing all the skills yep. that I required to be an entrepreneur. Yep. So um, concepting, strategy, working with clients, people people stuff, working in teams, pitching, delivering, um, all these things were my kind of wax on, wax off, paint the fence, wash the car. Um, it was practice for what I was going to do later in life. Yeah. Um, and I'll always kind of have a huge gratitude to that world for, for giving me that. And do you think, so if anyone's listening and they want to do what you've done. They want to leave the nine to five, the mm-hmm. safe, I'm going to call it the safety because it is mm-hmm. yep. safe. Yep. Going it alone is a risk yep. and it's a huge change. Yep. What, having done it, mm-hmm. what would you say to anyone thinking about doing it? It's, it's a part of life, which I think is, it's kind of critical. I come back to, to mythology. It's the hero's quest that we all need to go on. It's, it's the, it's, it's transformative to take a leap of faith into the unknown and learn about what you're capable of in doing that. Whether you fail, whether you succeed, the fact that you take that leap of faith, you learn about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's personal growth mm-hmm. and it's absolutely transformational in terms of your own awareness of yourself, of who you are, of what you're capable of, of the um, the resilience that you can build. I think that is the, the greatest lesson that I've learned from it. It's, it's very easy to sit back um, in a in a comfortable role, if you've got a comfortable job in a comfortable environment, um, and I'm not saying that that's not right for a lot of people. You can challenge yourself and push yourself and be entrepreneurial in that role, but take a leap of faith. Ask to ask to try something else. Ask to move into some other area. If you have um, if you're restricted in any way by often hierarchies in an organisation, challenge it. Push at it. See what you see what you're made of, test your metal by challenging. Um, and it usually comes good. And if, if, if you find brick walls, yeah. deviate and move. Mm-hmm. So I think that, again, that, it, that, that hero's quest is all about um, 
in mythology, it's about you you enter the forest at the darkest point, and then you navigate your way through by trial and error, and then you find the pathway, and the pathway emerges before you, and you learn as you go, and you meet other people within that quest who will help you and, and assist you because you're on the quest. There's something serendipitous about that. Because you take the leap of faith, people emerge who want to support you in that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, they just come out of nowhere because they mm -hmm. see you taking the risk, mm -hmm. so they want to share support. Yeah. Interesting. It's been an amazing thing I've observed with the, um, cause as you know, I, the business I developed is a new type of respiratory inhaler. I've been an asthmatic and I developed a new type of respiratory inhaler. Um, and as I entered into that world, a totally unknown world to me, the respiratory industry, I started going to conferences and just introduced, hey, I'm, I'm the guy you've never heard of and I've developed a new kind of inhaler and I'm going to need some help. And you think, your assumption is people will go, you're an imposter, you're, you don't belong here. But actually what people, people are warm, people are lovely. It's, you know, it's, you just ask for help and it is usually given. Mm. Kindness is, is a, a huge, um, a huge part of the, the, the human condition and people are always looking for a way to, to, Deliver kindness. They get, it's its own reward in a way. Mm -hmm. So I found so many people going, that's great. You should speak to, let me help you. Let me do, and, and it's a, uh, yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's easily quantifiable. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a, a Gota quote about, um, about taking that leap of faith. And, uh, he said, he says, I think, Provenance itself uh, comes into play, and things will things will happen just because you took the risk. Mm -hmm. Can't quantify it, but things will happen. Mm -hmm. Bigger risk, not doing anything at all, right? Some may well, say. Well, again, you come to the end of your life and you go, well, "What do I do?" Um, there's another that um, I hate throwing quotes at you, but there's a <laughs> Rousseau quote about um, most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to their graves with their songs still in them. Grim. Now that's enough true. to motivate you to yeah. take that leap of faith. You briefly mentioned there your invention, mm -hmm. your inhaler. Um, talk to us about, well, a little bit about that in terms of the product, but also the mm -hmm. whole process of what made you, other than going through being asthmatic yourself, mm -hmm. what was the kind of catalyst to do that and come up with something that hadn't been done before, that whole invention piece? Where does that come from? So sometimes inspiration comes from unknown areas. Um, I have a blue salbutamol inhaler, which most people are aware of. It's bulky, it contains multiple doses, and it's kind of, it's one of the, you get worn, so you have to be very conscious all the time of carrying it, and there's also stigma attached. And I always wanted something simpler. So there's a new generation of dry powder drugs in development. So rather than the wet mist, which is aerosolized, you inhale a very small amount of very fine particles, um, about five milligrams. It's a very small amount of powder. And it comes in a new generation of inhalers. And it's it's built in, in, a, in a very specific way, a very industry specific. And I saw this and I thought, I've got an idea how that could be done differently. And it was to do with the way um, filtration masks work and the way that they capture particles on an inhalation, and reversing that, and then creating a two-dimensional business card size um, uh, structure that would, if you squeeze it, turned into three dimensions. And it was all, it, it was sort of, very embryonic in the early days and had to sort of play with ideas and draw things and, and ask questions and learn about things. And I realized it was, it was viable. And 
as that emerged as a, as a viable option, I thought this is worth pursuing. And the reason I thought it was worth pursuing was because I, as a user of inhalers, wanted it. It would work for me if I could make it work. And I thought if it would work for me, it would work for other people. So I was the, con I was the customer. And that's most great products, I think, that exist in the world because people go, the thing I'm using is not good enough for me or there's a problem and I can see a solution and you develop that. And it's, you know, it's just evolutionary change because people see problems and, and everything that you create creates its own problem and then that's a problem for somebody else to kind of at attack. So that belief that I had a great product, that I as a user would use it and therefore there was a market for it, was the thing that gave me the confidence to go out and pursue that as a business. Um, and that's, and, and in my naivety, Sean, I thought, I'll write this up as a patent, um, take it to a few of the big pharma, they'll think I'm a genius and they'll just throw money at me. <laughs> classic um, Don. Total classic Don. <laughs> but again, it's that learning. You learn, you learn as you go, as you kind of, as you tread the path. And it's been a real wake up call to me, this whole experience that ideas, it's the easy bit. Absolutely simple to have an idea because it doesn't take any real physical effort. It doesn't need you to pull other people in to support you. So the, the process of committing to executing is the thing that is the hard part. And quite often creative people are very comfortable in that comfort zone. Well, I'll, I'm happy to do the strategy and then pass it to the client. The client goes and executes. Um, but actually executing and putting the effort in and having to go through the long, complex process, especially with a physical product. It's actually considerably easier with a digital product. The physical world has so many more parameters to work within to kind of get a product to market. But it's taken five or six years and we've, I've had to consult all of that time. So I've been consulting as a full-time job to pay the bills. And with every other hour I have developing the product with my business partner, and we got it to the point where it's actually working and it's working very well. So we've got a proven product now. And at that point, we've just literally just um, this month, um, we've received our first big investment injection into the business, which means that the pathway will accelerate for the next year and a half. And we're going to get it to a full working prototype ready to take to market. So it's been long, hard, arduous process that is quite so much commitment, so much hard work, um, so much money. I can't tell you how broke I am, but it's, it, it pays off. It, it, it's somehow entering that dark, that dark forest at the darkest point, mm -hmm. the light emerges You've on the path the and, and it comes good in the end. So, uh, we're, we're moving towards that. That's so exciting. That's really cool. And it just shows you all the time, as you say, that you've spent and here, here we are. Maybe it's funny that we're having this conversation now when you've just had that big round. <laughs> well, I was talking. I was talking to you earlier about uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, yeah. Gary V, yeah. and he he always says, along with a lot of other people, there is no such thing as an overnight success. Yeah. Um. You. The, you only get the reward if you put the effort in. You can't expect to just have. Well, I've come up with an idea, and suddenly I'm going to be rich. Mm -hmm. Um. There is a. There's some sort of unquantifiable equation that says the volume of effort, how hard it is and how difficult it is for you and how much effort you put in will be rewarded equivalently at the end in some ways. And even if it's not, even if that's not financial, 
it's in your own personal sense of I did that. Yeah. At least I had a go and I did it. Just to finish off, um, you mentioned that there's so much time and effort that's gone into this last eight years of, of your life. How do you balance the whole personal life with that? You mentioned you have a teenage son. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. you know, comes with its challenges in yeah. itself. Yeah. Um, how else do you kind of manage to switch off? Do you switch off? Are I, you that kind <laughs> of guy? <laughs> um, that's a good question. So again, in terms of pivotal moments, mm -hmm. what I realized in life is I wanted to show him that he could take risks and he could challenge himself and he could push himself and he could take those leaps of faith in himself to get something more, um, as a as a father, as a parent, you you you'll experience this. You can tell them what they should and shouldn't do, but ultimately, what how you act and what you show them um, through your actions is what will impact the greatest. So, in answer to your question, um, I'm a grafter. I'm from Newcastle. <laughs> I'm from parents who worked very hard and yeah. showed me how you work hard. And showed me that if you do do two things, which is work hard and work smart, that's a killer um, combination. So, you know, I never stop. I don't watch TV. I don't really kind of switch off that way. I like working late into the night. Um, I like filling my time. Uh, I can juggle multiple things. I'm I'm pretty fast when it comes to the the work that I've done because of my experience. Um, and I don't really switch off, but. I don't really need to switch off. Like, yeah, I'm kind of tired a lot and it's kind of exhausting, but the energy in me is, it's great. I mean, I'm doing this thing that I'm supposed to do and that that in itself is a self-perpetuating energy. Um, the one thing I do, which is, which is very therapeutic for me, which I took up about four years ago now. So I do field archery. Ooh, I did so, not expect you to say that <laughs> of everything. <laughs> so I take my bow and arrow and field archery cool. is not not as it sounds, archery in a field, which is like you see on the Olympics. Field archery is done in a forest and it's, a, it's like a golf course in a forest of targets at different lengths ranging from 20 meters to 80 meters. And you move through the forest and you have to kind of uh, hit the different targets. Um, and I find it incredibly therapeutic because it's very zen, it's very simple. There's only me, the bow, the arrow and the target. And there's also something about it as a metaphor for life you have to find a target and then you have to work out how to get as good as you can as hitting as close to the target as possible. Um, so it's, it's, that's my thing that, that gives cool. me mental clarity and, and I won't lie. The, as soon as you first said it, I had a vision of like hunger games, Dawn in hunger games, <laughs> fighting with everyone else, trying to get, I don't to fire arrows at other people. Just hard targets. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. That's brilliant. Um, and then final question, would you do anything differently? You've done loads of different things. You've done loads of cool things. Probably had loads of difficult times as well, because let's be honest, we all do. Mm -hmm. Looking back, is there anything that you would change? Very little. The only thing that I would change is that I would, as a creative person, I would ask for what I'm worth. Creative people tend to feel that um, they'd, they'd be creative even if they weren't getting paid. And so many times I made the assumption through my career up until almost up until I was 40, I thought if the business is doing well, they'll just pay me accordingly. And I never made demands and, and had enough respect for the value of my own work. So that's one of the regrets that I have. Um, I'm not financially motivated at all, but I do think it's important as a creative person that you respect and value your own 
competencies and um, and what you can do, what you can deliver that's of value. Yeah, and you know if if you are a creative person and you find that difficult, having been in an extremely senior position within that mm-hmm. industry, what do you recommend for somebody who knows that they're worth more? They want to ask, but they don't know how to ask. Yeah. What's the what's the expectation from somebody that was sitting at the top of the tree? It's very difficult because if your if your natural instinct is to have a lot of inhibitions around that, um, you really just have to. It's the challenge. It's a, you're uncomfortable. You're only going to get comfortable by putting that foot into the into the the chaos and see what happens. Um, the other thing that I would say to anybody listening: if you if you hire creative people and you employ creative people. Pay them a bit more than you think they want because the the wonder of creative people is that if they're comfortable with everything else in life, they will perform at the highest possible level. If they feel uncomfortable, all their thoughts will be about is I'm not valued, I'm undervalued, and that will inhibit their creativity. So for anybody managing creative people, get there before they ask. You know, it doesn't have to be kind of way higher, don't, don't need to be overpaid, but... You always have to kind of compensate them correctly because you'll get them in a great comfort zone and they will perform optimally for you. Brilliant. What a way to end. Great. Don, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been great chatting. My pleasure.